Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. This morning we are in week two of our Get a Job series, not Get a Job, Get a Job. Um, and it's all about the book of Job. Who knew that there was a book called Job in the Bible? Plenty of people, fantastic. It's not a very famous book, as we mentioned last week. Marcy loves it because she's a sucker for punishment. Um, I'm going to mention this every single week because this is like, I just found it hilarious. But um, the book of Job is, a, as we mentioned last week, is a book that does explore suffering. And, and, and we talked about uh, the theme of suffering and, and the perspective that the book of Job brings. That's all available in last week's message. I understand that the podcast wasn't amazing. There was some weird echo going on. Uh, we are working hard to fix all that kind of stuff. But you can still get the, uh, the message behind it on our podcast. And this week, I'm going to be talking to you about how to help someone who is in pain. You know, when I was about 21 years of age, which um, was a long time ago, my Asian genes don't show that. I know some of you think I'm 22. Um, and that was, come on, Joe. That laugh was not a laugh that you want to hear. So, <laughs> but you know, when I was 21, which is quite a while ago, uh, I already knew that I wanted to work in church. I was already, I had done an internship for a year. I had volunteered. I spent a lot of time uh, working and volunteering in church. I, I absolutely loved it. And that was, that, um, it, it was something that I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. Uh, but at 21, I had a real pivoting, a pivotal point in my understanding of what my life was supposed to look like. You see, I grew up in a church in Singapore where, where, it seemed like um, church leaders were very maybe focused on, on telling you what you should do, what you should wear, how you should say stuff, what you should be saying. Uh, and, and you know, there was a whole like, you go to church and it's like, bless you, brother, bless you, sister. And then you do a little bow. And did we bow? I don't know if we bowed. It was just in my mind. Uh, but you know, it's all this like, you know, being polite, being nice. You know, that was so important, and I thought that that probably kind of came into my life a little bit. And I thought that being a, a, a person that worked in church, a church leader, uh, that, that the whole point of it is to help people behave right. And I thought that that was a big point of it. I thought that that's how, when, how, how would people know that we're Christian? We need to act differently, so we need to be even more polite than a usual person. We need to be even more courteous. We need to be even more joyful or whatever it was. And, um, and, and in this season when I was 21, I don't know, I think it was God orchestrating something in my heart. But I was listening to message after message. I went to conferences, I was listening to podcasts, and, and so many messages centered around uh, verses in John 13, verse 34 to 35, and it says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. This is Jesus saying this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And as I was listening to this, and as they unpacked this verse, they were pointing out something to me, that, that people knowing that we are Jesus' disciples isn't really about how we talk, how we dress, or how we act, but it really comes back to the heart about whether we love one another. It went really quiet in here. People in your life will know that you are a Christian not because you say bless you, not because you say your please and thank yous, even though that is part of being a nice human being and a good human being, 
but it's because you love other people. It's your love for other people that is going to differentiate you to other people. And, and as I was listening to conversations and, and messages about this, something set up in me. And I realized that I'm not a very loving person. Or maybe I should say I don't really love very well. And I think that's because I'm a very driven person. And so I thought that loving people meant telling them how to get their life in order. I thought that fixing people's lives was the way to show that I was loving. And as I kind of meditated on this verse, I realized that maybe I wasn't quite getting it right. And I needed to learn how to come alongside people and to help people. I, I would just, when, when a person was in pain and in suffering, I would avoid them because, you know, I just don't know how to deal with that stuff. And so I would just stay away. I would let the more loving people get into that space. You know what I mean? Some of you are like me. Uh, I went to, as part of my role, I, I, I've attended a number of funerals. And, and after funerals, um, I, I always get told that I'm the most awkward person in a room. And it's not a compliment. It's just like, Nate, you have no idea what to do with your hands when you're at a funeral. You, don't even, you look like you're trying to smile but not smile at the same time. You know what I mean? And I'm that person. I'm the, the weird, awkward person at the funeral because I don't like that kind of spaces. But God has been showing me over time the necessary part of being able to stand with people, to sit with people who are going through difficult times. And I think that is a very important part of us loving people. My pastor told me a, a while ago that it is in times of crisis that your actions scream love the loudest. It is in times of deep pain that, that the little things that you do say so much. And, 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 and that's been so true. The more I've learned that the little things that I'm doing when a person is in struggle town uh, that tells them that they are loved, that they are still valuable, that God hasn't forgotten them, it is in those moments that is so important. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about this and, and why doing this is part of the series is because when you read the book of Job, there's 30-odd chapters of three of Job's friends trying to comfort him and trying to sit with him in this time of suffering. They, that, that, that's their whole, that, that really is the main bulk of this book. The problem is that they did it terribly. They did it absolutely shocking. They did a shocking job of trying to comfort Job. And so we're going to learn from them. We're going to learn a little bit about how we can help people. So are you ready for this? It's going to be practical. There's going to be things that you can learn from this. Um, but really, it starts from quite a beautiful space because last week we covered the first couple of chapters except for the last little bit. And in Job 2, 11 to 13, it says this, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set up from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, which in that culture was a sign of mourning. I'm mourning with you. I'm grieving with you. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. We know the three friends are male because no woman will be able to stand seven days without saying anything. (laughs) 
So we know three male friends comes to a mailman. They sat for seven days in absolute silence. The rest of this message is kind of deep, so I just needed to get a laugh out there. So we had these three friends, and I tried to search out where uh, Temen Shuhai and Naman comes from. <laughs> Sorry, I'm terrible with this. I tried to find out where they were from, and I couldn't really quite nut out where exactly these locations were, but what, what I could probably f guess is that these three friends came from three different regions from the area. They weren't necessarily neighbors. They had to travel, and, and they heard about their friend Job. They heard that something was going on. And so they said, let's go there, and let's go comfort Job, because it sounds like he's going through a really terrible time. But even knowing a bit of the story did not get them ready for what they were about to see. They saw Job, and his body was covered from head to toe in sores. He had no wealth. He had no money. He had no family around him. He was all alone. And so they saw this man who probably looked a shadow of who he used to be. They saw him, and the moment they went, is that Job? Seriously, is, is, is this Job? They suddenly recognized this was Job. And they proceeded to just be with him and to sit with him for seven days. And because the grief was so heavy in Job's heart, he couldn't, he couldn't say any words. He couldn't express what was going on inside of his soul. And that is something that I've realized over my time. Sometimes people just don't know what to say. And it gets a little bit awkward because... Sometimes when you're wanting to comfort a person, you want to know how to go on and what is taking place, but there's no word sometimes. And we've got to be careful and we've got to be okay that we, we're not trying to put words into their mouth. And Christians are terrible at this. We go into these dark, uh, uh, heavy places and, and we say really trite words like, it's, God still loves you, it's going to be okay. And sometimes it's almost as if you're just brushing away the darkness in the soul and you're trying to tell them that it, it doesn't really matter, that, that it doesn't exist anymore just because I said amen or bless you or, or whatever it is. Sometimes we just need to shut up. Sometimes we need to understand the situation. And, and these friends, they started off on an amazing note of grace they started on an amazing note of comfort and they just simply sat with him and gave him the space just to be and wait for him to open his mouth. Things started to change the moment Job opened his mouth. Though. In chapter 3 we read, and you can read this in your time, we don't have time this morning, but Job opens his mouth in chapter 3 and he begins to share about what is going on in his soul. He begins to, to pen a few words, he begins to say a few words, and, and it was along the lines of, I curse the day that I was born. He was basically saying, the blessing that I had received and all of the amazing things that I've seen pales in comparison to the suffering that I'm going through, and I just wish that I was never born. I wish that I didn't have to go through any of the highs, but neither did I want to go through any of these lows as well. It was, it's just that heavy. It's just that painful that I cursed the day that I was born. He was just trying to put words into, his, into what was going on, and so he was beginning to to get ready to release it. But what happened was that the three friends took it as an opportunity to begin to fix Job. 
they didn't really hear the words that he was saying. They, they, they drew certain conclusions. They concluded that Job was saying that, that God is terrible and that it is all God's fault that the suffering had come upon his life and etc., etc. Et and, and basically, for the next 30 plus chapters, we have this dialogue. I'm, I'm, I'm reducing this book into a very short book by, by, by saying it this way. But basically, the friends started to tell him, Job, your suffering is your fault. It's your fault because you're unrepentant. It's your fault because you couldn't get it right. And if, the only thing you need to do right now is just to say sorry to God. Give him a, a, a little sacrifice. Say, I'm the one who has sinned. I've done wrong. And God will replace everything that you have lost. And then Job said, I have got nothing to repent of. There's nothing that I am to be blamed for in this circumstance. And the friends said, obviously there must be something. And Job saying, no, there isn't. They say, yes, there is. Job says, no, there isn't. They say, yes, there is. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. 30 chapters of no, there isn't. And, 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 they just get into this place where it's a stalemate. And unfortunately, for the three friends, Job is right. We read that in chapters 1 and 2, that, that God himself said that Job is a blameless and upright person. And, 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 and it goes on to say, gee, God actually says that I have inflicted this suffering on, on Job for no reason. Now, Job and his friends don't know this. But the thing that I want to point out from there is that sometimes we don't know. When we are not in this painful situation, it's sometimes easy to draw conclusions. And it's sometimes easy to, to make certain guesses about what is going on in a person's life and, 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 and to draw certain conclusions about what needs to be done. But sometimes that isn't helpful because you're wrong. And in fact, God actually tells these three guys that they were wrong in chapter 42. God says in verses 7 to 8, He says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your true friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant has. How crazy. 30 chapters of argument and saying, you definitely have done something wrong. And God says, you're the one that's wrong. I wonder how many of us have sat with people, offered our advice, offered our, uh, our solutions, and, and we've been completely wrong. And the sad thing is that Job wasn't looking for a solution to his problem. That's not what he wanted those friends to be there for. In Job 16, 2 to 5, we read these words that Job said. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth... This is what he wanted. My mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. He wasn't looking for a solution. He was looking for friends. He was looking for encouragement and he was looking for support. And there's this thing that these three friends did where they went on these speeches to try to convince Job that he had done something wrong. He knew in his heart that there was nothing. And this is where I want to... I want to bring about one perspective 
One, one thing that we need to hold in our minds as we help people as they are going through difficult times. And this, and this is the one thought that, that if you get, I believe that you're going to be equipped in any situation with any kind of pain to be able to be effective in that, in that space. And this, and this one perspective is this. Stop, stop trying to be the hero and start being the guide. Stop, stop trying to be the hero start, start being the guide. What do I mean, do I mean by this? Is that, is that I actually identify very much with these three friends. That is my natural inclination. When I find a person who is in pain, who is suffering, my immediate reaction is to fix the problem. Right? Right? It's kind of, it's kind of an easy thought. I'm going to fix the problem. The problem with that perspective that I can go in and fix the problem is that I'm assuming that I know what the problem is in the first place. And, and the problem with that assumption is that I think that I know all things. And the problem with that is that I think that I'm above this person. Think about it this way. In chapter 1, we were told that Job was the greatest man of all of the East. Everyone knew who Job was. Everyone. He was the most generous. He was the most loving. He was the most kind. He was the most rich. He was the most everything. All his daughters were the most beautiful girls in the whole of the world. Because this is not a joke. Everyone knows Job. Everyone knows Job's family. And we have these three other guys. And they all knew Job. And they were Job's friends. But they probably lived in Job's shadow. Right? Right? They probably weren't as rich as Job. They probably didn't have as beautiful daughters as Job did. They probably weren't as wise as Job. They weren't as anything as Job. It was always Job, 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 Job. And suddenly they hear that Job was suffering. And they come to this place. And I'm wondering whether there was a thought in their heart. Maybe Job wasn't as good as we all thought he was. The fact that I haven't had to suffer the way that he did. Maybe that, maybe that shows that I'm, I'm a little bit, a little bit ahead in my journey. My journey. Did you get that, you thought? Get that thought? For those who are you're like me. Because I think in, in a way that, way that, that I did actually as a, as a young, younger man, man was that, was that, that I, offered I offered help because that made, that made me seem like I was ahead than I really, than I really was. I came, I came alongside people, people Partly because I think I was driven to help people, but I think there was another part of me that helped people because it made me feel like I was a bigger person. It made me feel like I had answers. It made me feel like I was a competent person. And that's what I would do. And when these three friends came and they came and they saw the situation, I think there was something in them that went, ha ha, I'm actually ahead of this man. And that's why they began to offer that advice, they began to offer that help because and made them look like they were ahead of Job for the first time in their lives. When we, when we think that we can fix people, when we, when we think that we've got the answers for people's situations, we naturally, automatically, something inside them is thinking, we are ahead of them. We become, we become the, the hero of the story, the ones who have got everything all together. And that it is, is not the right perspective to have. That's the perspective that these three friends got into trouble with. But I want to flip this as well because I think there's another kind of hero that many, many people try to be in today's world. This is, this is, the, this is probably the, 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 the hero that I describe as the, the hard hero, hero is, the, is, the, is, the, is the fixer. But there's the, there's the other hero, hero. And, this, and this other hero is the loving hero. 
is that he wrote that is very, 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 very important kind. Is that he wrote that would carry a person who is in a difficult season. And what he would do is everything that they could in order to help this person. And in fact, probably beyond what they could do in order to help this person out. And they could justify it. And I heard, and I heard many people justify this before. Just like at the start, I read from John from John's that Jesus said that this is how you know that you're a disciple of love for one and one another. They said, I'm just loving this person. I'm just trying to be as loving as possible. And it's in this situation that six years to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law. See, I am meant to carry every other person's burden. I'm meant to carry all of us and I'm, and I'm carrying whatever, whatever is, going, is on. going on. And I've seen, and I've seen many people do this. They see themselves as those that are carrying loving, loving person. And so they go about so their, their life taking one to one. This is my mission. I'm trying to help this person. And I hear you jump on my back. Next person just jump on my back. Jump on my back. Jump on my back. All these people on our backs and wags on their life. And there's a little something that says, oh, look at me. I'm carrying, carrying so many, so many people, people on my shoulders. I'm making this distance for them. I'm carrying for them, for them. Loving, them. loving them. But that's, but that's the wrong, wrong way to read this, 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 this passage. If we reread Galatians, Galatians verse 2, two in its context, it says this in verse 2, 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 Hey, hey, for their own, own invoice. invoice. 
That means none of you should be finding a lot of nails to mail. Entirely, entirely, entirely. That's not what I'm saying. Please find me a lot of nails to mail. My wife is like this thing. But there is this sense that Paul is talking about the fact that in our lives we need cost, cost. We do think that our decisions have a cost behind them. If you choose to be lazy, there's going to be a cost to that. If you choose to sleep in instead of going to your exam, there's going to be a cost behind that. If you choose to be sarcastic and nasty in your work, there is going to be a cost to that. If you choose to quit your job without having another job lined up, there's going to be a cost to that. There are costs to everything that we do. Let me put this in a positive note because I've given you very nasty Examples. But do you know that the call of God in your life is going to cost cost? Jesus said that you need to pick up your cross daily in order to follow me. There is a cost involved. He said that you better count the cost before you follow me to make sure that you are able to do this. Paul talks about it in a similar way. He says, what athlete would run a race without first knowing and training for it? There is a cost in order to do the life that God has called us to. There's always a cost. And what Paul is talking about is that if we are to grow and become mature as people, we need to learn how to pay for the invoices in our life. If we start to get into a place where we are always paying for a person's invoice, that is the day that they will never be able to mature. They won't be able to have the ability to take on the call of God for themselves. In America especially, there has been this wave of parents, this new parents, that the child comes back with a bad grade, always the teacher's fault. I'm going to talk to your teacher about your grades. Crazy. And not only do they do that now, there's also another, some of these parents are crazy. They go to their child's workplaces and talk to the boss for their child. This is actually happening in America. They're saying, you are mistreating my child. You mean that boy who doesn't even know how to deal with his own life and doesn't know how to manage his finances, you're coming and telling me that your boy is perfect? That is actually happening in America. I wouldn't be surprised if some parents are starting to do that here. And a part of it is that some of us think that that's just being a nice person. You're just being kind. You're not being kind. There's a word for this. You're being codependent. You're actually taking your identity from helping other people. You're actually saying, I am worth something because I'm worth something to that person. Parents, can I just talk to you for a moment? And future parents, you need to hear this. The goal of parenting is to raise children that become independent. In other words, you need to be equipping your child to one day say, I don't need you in order to get through my everyday life. That is the goal of parenting. But some parents, I'm not going to look at anyone here, I'm not thinking of anyone at all, but some parents, you know, my close, okay, I'm not judging anyone here, but some parents, but some parents are somehow sabotaging their child's life by saying, I'm always going to be here to do everything for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a parent that is ready to take on the burdens of the child. But there's something wrong with parents that are paying for every single invoice that your child incurs. Because your child's not going to grow up. It's sad because 
the world sees the church as an invoice paying organization where they can come in and get handouts from the church. Isn't that what you're supposed to be? You're supposed to be kind. Have you got friends in your life that you can't say anything about what they're doing? You can't say anything about what their life is like. Why? Because you're Christian and you're meant to be kind. You know what's the kindest thing to them? Let them pay for their own invoices. Because they will then grow up. That's what Paul was saying. Each one should test their own actions so that they can take pride in themselves. There's a sense that we are being called to know that there is a capacity in us to achieve great things. God has created us with that kind of a call. We need to grow people that are able to get into that place. But for some people, that is extremely difficult because it doesn't feel loving. It is not loving to be paying for someone else's invoice. It is loving to carry someone's burden. It is not kind to be paying for a person's invoice. You know what's the problem there? You set yourself up to be the hero. They can't live without you. You're the reason why they wake up. You're the reason why they can get through today. You're the reason why they can buy Maccas. You're the reason why, uh, why they, 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 they can do whatever they want. So you're slogging away at your life, carrying them on your shoulders, and they're having a free ride. They say, hey, let's go for a piggyback ride. You know who does that? Two-year-olds. Not the 25-year-old guy who knows how to shave, but is still living, playing video games the rest of his life. You know, there's something about us needing to mature. But the truth is that we cannot get people to mature. I've learned that. I've learned that I cannot force a person to pay for the invoices. See, that's a fixer in me. That's a fixer that goes and like, oh, look at all these invoices. You need to start paying for all of these things. I've done that. I've tried to help people through that situation. They're going to need to decide for themselves that I'm willing to pay for these invoices because I'm wanting to grow up. I'm wanting to expand my capacity. I'm wanting to get somewhere in my life. The truth is that sometimes we cannot help people the way that we would like to. The truth is that when a person is in a difficult situation and they're suffering and there's pain, it should elicit an emotional response in us. Why? Because we are loving people. But we need to be careful with how we deal in those situations, how we deal with these situations. We are never meant to be the hero in those situations. We're always meant to be the guide. What do I mean by being a guide? You see, when God told the friends of Job's three friends, he said to them that you guys represented me wrong. You guys got me completely wrong, and you were speaking falsities about me. They were meant to be helping by helping Job see God in the midst of their struggle. In fact, there was this really weird character in the book of Job. We don't hear about him until like uh, chapter 32. And his name is Elihu. I have no idea if I'm saying his name right. But this guy, he, he pops out out of nowhere. We don't hear about him before, but suddenly he's just there. And apparently he's been part of the conversation the whole time. <laughs> it was like, who's this dude? He's just popped up. And at the start of his speech, he said, I'm only speaking because all of you have got nothing else to say, and I'm the youngest one of all of you guys, and so uh, I allowed you guys to speak, and so speak away, but, uh, but you've done it, and you've done a terrible job, so I'm going to fix everything. So Elihu's a bit proud. 
He's not a very nice person, in my opinion. If you read scholars' opinions about Elihu, they're like, yeah, it's kind of like an arrogant young guy, young punk that just comes in and says, I know what I'm talking about. And for the first three and a half chapters, by the way, Elihu speaks for five chapters straight. The longest speech of anyone in the whole book of Job comes from this young punk that we have got no idea. He just pops up and he starts talking. He's like, who invited you to this pity party? But anyway, Elihu starts talking and for the first three and a half chapters, he basically rehashes the other three guys' argument. He just said, basically, God will not punish you for no reason. There must be a reason behind it. But somehow, somewhere in the middle of his speech, it's like he had a light bulb moment. He had a light bulb moment, and in particular, in the last chapter um, um, of his speech, in chapter 37, let me just read a little bit to you. He says, At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice being God. To the rumbling that comes from his mouth, he unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the roar of uh, the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. And he goes on and he on, uh, on for a little while, and he talks about how God is in control of all these magnificent things in, 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 in nature. He talks about all of this stuff, and he basically kind of says, look, Job, God's big. He's, he's big. We don't understand everything that happens, but God is big. And I don't think that it was a coincidence that the moment Elihu shut his mouth, God began to speak. For 30 plus chapters of suffering, of pain, of a debate that had been going back and forth with no resolution, God hadn't said anything. Why? Because I think no one invited God into that conversation. These friends were so self-righteous, and so was Job being all self-righteous, but you can give it to Job because, guess what? He just lost everything. But these three friends who were there supposing to help they didn't invite God into the picture. But the moment this young guy, suddenly he stopped talking about all the things that he knew and he started talking about a God whom he knew, God comes in. God brings resolution. It might not be the most beautiful resolution or the resolution that you will want. And we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about whether God is still good in the midst of suffering. We're going to talk about uh, how we can find God in the middle of our suffering. And, and, and all that's all really important. But today I want to, to point out the fact that when we're trying to help someone in the midst of suffering, the most important thing that we do is that we guide them to God. Why? Because God is a hero of anyone's story. I need to stop putting myself in a position where I'm the hero because I don't know everything. I don't know how everything is supposed to work. I don't know how things are supposed to resolve, but God does. And this is something that I've started to do a lot more of. When I'm sitting with people, I stop thinking about what I know and I start asking, God, what is it that you want me to say? What is it that is important to this person right now? And when I do that and I just shut my mind for a few moments and I just say, God, just speak to me. Quite often I find God's voice speaking into a situation. 
Sometimes he tells me to shut up. Sometimes he tells me that the best that you can do and the only thing you can do right now is to pray. So you pray, but you leave this to me. And I'm glad that I learned to do that because sometimes I am paying for people's invoices without even knowing it. And then there are other times where God puts encouragement and words of comfort in my soul that I'm able to speak into a person's situation. Let them know that God still is there, that God is still able to, uh, to, uh, to redeem the situation and bring good out of the situation. And those things are not necessarily me. I think it's just God speaking through me because I'm just the guide. I'm not the hero. God is the hero. And I want to... I want to just put forward to you that if you are meant to be the guide, then you need to know this Jesus that you're meant to be guiding people to. You need to know that this God is able to supply for every single need. You need to know that this God has a grace that doesn't run out. You need to know that this God loves with a love that is stronger than any force in this world. You need to know that His salvation is more effective than any other uh, uh, Savior that this world tries to produce. We need to know this God in order to point people to this God. And so for the last couple of minutes that I have this morning, I just want to point you to this God. And the one thing that I want you to know about this God is that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, it says this, there Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who doesn't understand. We need to help people see because in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our pain, it's really hard to think that God understands. It's really hard for the person to know that God sees you, empathizes with your pain, with your situation. He knows it. He has gone through it. We have a God who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And then he goes on to say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Why do we need to be the guide? Is because the grace that is necessary for a person's situation isn't found in a human being. It's found in a throne of grace that we get access to because God has already provided the way. We need to become better at helping people to see that God is not asking you to jump through hoops. The three friends of Job were telling him that he needed to repent in order to access the grace of God. Let me tell you something about God's grace. God's grace has already been made available to you. And if you are saying, God, I know that you are my Savior, you are my God, I need you, that grace is made available to you. It doesn't mean that your situation goes away like that. It doesn't mean that the pain is not something you have to pro, uh, process. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you go back to doing whatever you want to do. God is not about your comfort. God is about your growth. God is about seeing that there's something greater upon your life that He's trying to call out. And my part is simply to be a guide. Knowing that I need help every now and then. Knowing that I need guides in my life to help me find God in the middle of my struggles because I don't always see Him the way that He wants to be seen. My pain has a way of obscuring the way that God is to me. But if I can just put this forward to you, that God 
is good. As we sang the songs, as we sang the song, Oh, Come to the Altar, it said, are you struggling? Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling broken? Are you feeling like you've blew it? His arms are still open wide, and His grace is sufficient. I love this. One of the verses in the Bible says that God is able to save to the uttermost. God is able to save no matter what. If you simply turn to Him and say, yes, I want to receive, that grace is available to you. If I can invite the band up this morning. I hope that this message has been helpful to you. If, you be, if you're in a place where you're wanting to help people, I hope that you remember you're not meant to be the hero, you're just meant to be the guide. You're never meant to carry that kind of a load. But this morning, I just want to speak to people who need to be guided to God. Then maybe right now you're in a place of struggle, you're in a place of pain, you're in a place where things haven't quite worked out the way that you want it to. And let me tell you that you're not going to find resolution in any human being. You're not going to find resolution in another person. That emptiness, that darkness, that anxiety, that worry, that depression, whatever it is, it's only found in God's grace. The solution is only found in God's grace. And so this morning, if you want to invite Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, to be the hero of your story, to be able to see change in your life like never before, then I'd like you to say this prayer with me this morning and to just invite Him into your life. So I can guess, just invite you to just close your eyes, bow your head, no one looking around. If you can say this prayer with me, everyone. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Be the hero of my story. I know that I am unable to do this by myself. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.